I have to tell you, I've always related to those who blow it in life. I mean, I really have a kind of a special kinship with them. And the reason is simple. I am one of them, one of the big mess-ups of the world. In fact, by, by nature, blowing it has been one of my key hallmarks, one of the primary aspects of each story I've written in my life. And I, I know for those of you who don't know me or who might be new or guests to Northridge right now, you could, you could think I'm just blowing smoke. Oh, sure, you were all that bad. You know, you're just trying to... No, it's true. I was born a mess up. I, I had a profound gift for finding trouble. And I'm just going to give you one example so that you'll get an idea of the fact that you should be glad that I'm not your child. I, I, and you, you need to know, I don't talk a lot about the specifics of my past because I'm not proud of it, but it's important that you know failure's not final. I, I literally got kicked out of school four times. Now, those of you who've been here a while probably heard this, but, but you just need to know, we're not talking about like little three-day suspension kind of kicked out of school, you know, I got a cool little vacation for a couple of days and then went back. I mean, kicked out of school, literally expelled, complete removal four times, two high schools and two college times. And that just represents what I can tell you from the platform, you know, there are obviously things I would never tell you from the platform, but this is just the tip of the iceberg for me. So, so right now, I know what's happening. Some of you are trying to figure out what church you're going to check out next weekend, right? I, if this pastor's that messed up. But for those of you like me, you know, my fellow mess-ups, the good news is that we're not alone. The same was true of many of the heroes of the Bible. I know a lot of religious people like to pretend they're better than everybody else and, you know, they were born on a higher summit of living somehow. But the truth is that many of the heroes of the Bible were just mess-ups. Like Peter, like David, like even characters that are less known. A guy named Samson comes to mind. And I have to tell you, because of my own, I don't know, propensity to be like them, I've made a study of their lives because I have to tell you, um, I don't want to be defined by failure. And so I want to learn from these who were but overcame it. And you know what I found as I've studied the lives of these other fellow mess-ups? There's a common denominator that comes with failure. I mean, every single one of their failures had something in common. And this is what it was. They, they were living for and they were limited by the scene. I mean, what I mean is they, they literally were living for and limited in the way they made their choices by what they could see in the moment, what they could touch in the moment, what they could feel in the moment, how, how they were moved in the moment, what could bring pleasure for them or what they could benefit from in the moment. And, and in their most disastrous failures, it came about because they lived for that moment, what they could see, feel, and desire. They couldn't get beyond the seen to the unseen, which is eternal, and because of it, they failed drastically. And as I examine my own life, it's true of me as well. And as long as they continued to live based upon the seen, they lived in failure. But they became heroes of faith when they moved beyond the seen to the unseen. And what we have to understand is that this has resonance for us here in the 21st century. In fact, I just want to use that that guy, a lesser-known guy to many, but he's still an important, interesting character in the Bible, Samson. You can read his little short story in Judges chapter 13, verse 17, but let me just set context, and you can read the rest on your own. The context was, there was a couple who couldn't have a child, and some of you who want a child and can't, you know the emotion that comes with that, and some of the desperation in this particular culture, it was really a difficult Thing. They were looked down upon because of it, and, and 
God showed up one day and he says, you know, I'm going to give you a special gift. I'm going to give you a special child. But know this, I'm giving this child who's going to be called Samson for a very special reason. He's going to protect Israel. He's going to protect my name against all the enemies. So I want him to be devoted in a special way. He, he's not going to be able to drink everything everybody else drinks. He's not going to be able to eat everything else, everyone else eats. He's not going to take care of himself the way others do. He's going to be devoted a, in a very special way to me. He's going to be a person who lives for the unseen. That was God's will for his life. The problem is, though Samson was supposed to live for the unseen, he lived the majority of his life for the seen. And you know how it evidenced itself that he was living not for the unseen but the seen? It evidenced itself in disobedience. Time after time after time he lived contrary to what God had called him to and asked him to do. He, he was disobedient. Uh, let me just give you one example. It's at the beginning of the description of his story. Judges 14 verses 1 and 2. Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. Now I want you to take note, in that passage, twice it talks about seeing or saw. He, he, he's living in the moment. He's, he's basing his choice and his desires and what he wants based upon his temporary feelings and drives and pursuit of pleasure. And, and he says... I want her. Now, what you need to know is, for a guy who is supposed to be living for the unseen, this isn't the woman he should be marrying. God created her, she's valuable and all that, but she wasn't a woman after God's heart. She wasn't a woman living for God. She wasn't a woman committed to God's truth and God's word. This was a person that those who were living for God shouldn't have tried to seek intimacy with and marriage with, but that's exactly what he did. Why? Because God wanted it? No, because he wanted it. Because this would honor the unseen God? No, because it would feel good in the moment. Basically, you want a 21st century translation of this passage. He went to Timnah, saw a chick that was hot, and he wanted her now. That's not the way it works if you're going to live for bigger things than the moment. And that's what he was born for bigger things than to waste his life on moment after moment experiencing pleasure and yet this is what he did and he did it time and time and time again I mean his whole life chapter after chapter after chapter was written this way and it ultimately led to his downfall I mean because he was supposed to be standing against God's enemies and God empowered him to stand against the enemies but when you live in disobedience what happens is you lose God's power and that's what he did he did some really stupid things and because of his own choices he lost power and God's enemies that he had the power to overcome but he lost it overcame him and I mean they were horrific in their their punishment of him they gouged his eyes out they blinded him and then they put him in a coliseum where he could become the entertainment for crowds of people and that's exactly what he became because of his disobedience he and the God he served became a laughingstock it's a sad story but, but here's what we often miss. We're all the same as Samson. We write the same kind of chapters in our story as Samson wrote. Because disobedience has been at the heart of human nature since the fall of Adam and Eve. Disobedience. And it's the result of living for and being limited by the scene. The disobedience comes when I say what I feel right now is more important than what God wants me for me forever. What I, what I want right now is more important than what God wants for me. And, and we make these choices we're, we're living for and limited by the scene. But when we genuinely begin seeing beyond the moment to the unseen, to the eternal with eyes of faith, do you know what happens? Everything changes. It's what changed Peter from the mess up he was to a great man of faith. It's what changed David from the mess up he was to a, a great man of faith. And, and it even changed Samson in the end. 
Though, though Samson's failure certainly had forever consequences. I mean, he was forever blinded and he ultimately died in the end trying to do right for God. Here's what you need to know. Though he missed a lot of things he could have experienced from God, his failure wasn't final in the end. It wasn't his epitaph. In the end, he stood for God and he went out in a blaze of glory. And how did it happen? It happened because he lost his physical sight. Now get this. His eyes were gouged out. He could no longer see. He could no longer pursue what he could see. He was blinded. And it was when he was blinded, sad that it had to happen this way, but it was when he lost his physical sight that he could then start developing spiritual eyes of faith to see beyond the moment to the eternal, to the unseen. And it was then that everything changed for him. It was then that he stopped living for the moment and his temporary pleasures and rewards and he began living for the eternal. And, and here's the hope I want to share with you. It can be the same for us. We can go from living for the seen and the disobedience and destruction that comes from it, the, the failure, to living for the unseen and experiencing God's best in our life. Failure doesn't have to be final for us. And I, I just... I, I'm always trying to the best of my ability to be honest with you when I'm having this conversation with you on this platform. It's, this is a big deal in my life because I don't want to be defined by failure. I don't long to be defined by failure. I don't want failure to be my epitaph even though it comes so naturally to me. So the truth that I'm going to be sharing with you this weekend has become vital and life-changing, necessary for me and I'm hoping it can help you. Here's, here's the truth. When we go from living for the seen to genuinely having Jesus' unseen view of the world, when we, when we start seeing beyond what we see with our physical eyes and feel in our physical bodies to, to seeing God and what he wants, we will make obedience our priority. Because you see, when we live for the seen, we're going to make our pleasure the priority, our wants the priority. Our desires the priority, convenience and comfort the priority, what's going to benefit us right now the priority. But, but when we see, as Jesus saw, the unseen realities of God and his will for us in this world, we'll make obedience, not disobedience, obedience our priority. We'll, we'll place the highest of values on it. We'll choose to practice obedience whether it's convenient and comfortable or not. Even when, by the way, it significantly contrasts with feelings and wants and our sense of well-being. Even when we'd rather pursue other things, we'll obey Jesus when we really live for the unseen. Look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. In fact, this is love for God, that you vote right. Oh, wait, did I misread that? This is love for God, that you go to church every week. This is love for God, that you throw something in the offering plate or you give online. This is love for God, that, you know, you're a pretty decent person. This is love for God. You go to Northridge. That's true, but that's not what this verse says. I'm just kidding, by the way. It says, this is love for God. To obey. To keep his commands. Not to be a big talker. Not to be a person who sings worship music, you know. Not a person who reads the right books. This is love for God, to keep his command. It's our priority. And, and when we really love God, his commands are not burdensome. And isn't this true? Don't we often feel when God's, you know, given us a command, kind of like Samson, don't we kind of feel if we obey him, it's going to rip us off? Talk about ruining all the fun. Talk about taking away from what we really want. Talk about hurting us in the long run. I mean, it's going to hurt us. But but when you really love him, when you really see beyond the seen to the unseen, then you realize God's commands aren't a burden. They're a privilege. They're not here to hurt us, but to help us. Look at 1 John. I mean, John, the gospel, chapter 15, verses 10 and 11. Jesus is talking here, and he says, if you keep my commands, if you obey me, 
You will remain in my love. I mean, you'll, it'll be a love relationship. You'll be experiencing all of my best in your life. Just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love, I'm experiencing this profound relationship with the Father. That's what happens when you live in obedience. And I have told you this, he says, so that you'll be miserable and not have all the fun that other people get to have in the world. It's not what he said. You know, he doesn't give us commands so that our life will be less and diminished and worse. He gives us these commands because he knows when we live for the scene, we'll make choices that absolutely blow our lives just like happened with Samson and every other mess up in the world. But when we start living in obedience to him, that's when, as he says, we'll experience his joy and our joy will be complete. The reason so many of us are so miserable is because we keep thinking living for the scene and getting what we want and pursuing what we want in this moment is going to make us happy. It does not. But living for God does. Now, there are a couple of things we need to know about this whole obedience thing. And I don't know if you've noticed, just saying that word sounds weird in the 21st century, doesn't it? I mean, we don't say it in our wedding vows anymore, and I get that. It's not about one, that kind of deal. And we don't even tell our kids that anymore. We go, we're going to count. We don't even, we, this word's just like nowhere in our vocabulary. And yet it's the central priority of what it means to walk with God. Obedience. But you need to understand a couple of things about obedience that are very misunderstood. People have inverted it all over the place. People are claiming that we have to do things that we don't, and they're claiming we don't have to do things that we do. And, and here's why. For just two observations. The first is this. Christ followers, those of us who choose to follow Jesus, and I know not all of us have here, and I'm glad you're here if you're seeking out the idea of Jesus, but, but when you decide to follow Jesus, you need to know, you have options in your life in all those areas where God has not spoken directly. I mean, when God has not spoken directly to something, you have, you have options there. And he hasn't spoken directly to a lot of things. Uh, look at how the Bible says it in Romans chapter 14, verses, I'll just take two verses, 1 and 14. These people were arguing about stuff that God had never spoken directly to. The, if I can just get, set context for Romans 14, the, the Christians of the day were arguing about whether they should eat meat or not that was sacrificed to idols. That's what they were arguing about. Now, there's no issue. God spoke directly to the idol issue. Don't worship any other God. Don't worship any graven image. Don't, but don't set anything up as God and worship it. Not money, not a religious icon, not anybody. Not anybody. Don't worship an idol. But meat offered to idols, people were going, look it. The idols aren't even true gods. So what? It was an offer to an idol. Good cow gave its life. I believe in the real God, I'll thank God for the real God, you know, thing, and I'm going to eat that meat. Ribeye costs a lot of money. Why waste it is the way they think. Other people go, no, that meat was offered to an idol. To eat it would be to worship that idol, and I can't do it. And they had a real conscience about that. And these people were arguing about whether they should eat meat offered to idols or not eat meat to idols. They were dividing each other. They were fighting each other. It was like Republicans and Democrats, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton all over again. I mean, it was all over the place over something that God hadn't directly spoken to. Was it wrong to eat the meat offered? No. Was it wrong not to eat the meat? No. Was either one okay? Yeah. And what was happening? They were hating each other. They were dividing from each other. They were destroying each other. They were ruining each other in the name of Jesus over something that didn't matter. Sounds a lot like today, doesn't it? You need to know, if God didn't speak directly to something... You have options there. In fact, the passage goes on. Boy, I almost feel like Harvey Carey right now. I almost. <laughs> so he says, except one whose faith is weak, without quarreling and fighting over disputable matters. These, these issues were disputable because God hadn't spoken directly to it. They were making side applications over here and both had an argument. So those matters where God hasn't spoken are disputable matters. You can do it or not do it, doesn't matter in the end. And he says, I am convinced, the reason you shouldn't argue over this and go to war over this is, I'm convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, I mean, I get this from Jesus himself, 
that nothing is unclean in itself. Notice he's not saying nothing's unclean. There are all kinds of things he said are wrong and evil and bad. What he's saying is nothing that God has not spoken directly to, nothing that is one of these disputable issues is wrong in and of itself. So he says if anyone regards something as wrong, okay, then for them it's wrong. If they don't regard it as wrong, okay, for them it's not wrong. And we should care about each other in this. We should be sensitive about this in each other's lives. But would you stop making a theology out of something that God didn't say? It's basically what he's saying. Let, let me try and put it in 21st century language. Are you with me so far, everybody? Okay? All right. The world is filled with issues and things that God hasn't addressed. Like, Michigan or Michigan State? <laughs> or dare I say it, Ohio State. I, I know, see? God didn't speak to which team was better, but we're a bunch of haters over these teams, aren't we? Although I do have to honestly say I can't in my wildest imagined believe that God's a Buckeye fan. I'm sorry, I can't, but I can't preach that, right? Another one, it's like iPhone or Android. You know, I can tell you God's spoken to this, iPhone, for sure. No, no he hasn't. I, do you realize God's never even addressed the issue of good music versus country? <laughs> Never address the issue. Look, at, we have options in these areas where God hasn't spoken. And yet, you know, a lot of people are going to war over these things. The names of churches, the clothes we wear in churches that God's never spoken to, the kind of music, the kind of stuff. Are you, are you kidding me? Christ followers, though, while they have all the options in the world in areas where God hasn't spoken directly, Christ followers have no options, no options whatsoever where God has spoken directly. Look at if God's spoken it, we have to live it. I mean, that's just fact. I mean, look at 1 John 2, verses 3 and 4. We know that we've come to know him if we keep his commands. I know you don't even want to say it with me. I got it. Really, the, we know that we come, we've come to know him. Here's how Christians are today. I'm a Christian. I listen to Christian radio. That doesn't make you a Christian. You know, I am, I'm a Christian. I go to Northridge. I'm glad you come to Northridge. That doesn't make you a Christian. I'm a Christian, I was born this way, I went to catechism, or I went to this kind of school. I'm a Christian because I do this and I do that. I'm a Christian, I was born, and that doesn't make you a Christian. But I stand up and raise my hands in church when they sing. That doesn't mean you're a Christian. Look, it says, we know that we've come to know Jesus, for real, if we obey. Ouch. Look, it says, whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands. And remember, I'm just reading the Bible here. Don't get mad at me. <laughs> Whoever says, I know him, even if they sing the right music, go to the right church, give a bunch of stuff in the offering, do a bunch of serving. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. You see, the person who really sees the unseen like Jesus did makes obedience a priority. It's not talk, it's walk. Now sadly, many are making a huge deal about things that God has never addressed. While at the same time, they're diminishing or ignoring or changing things that God has clearly addressed. I mean, there are a lot of people who love their religious traditions more than the truth itself. One's optional, nothing wrong with their religious tradition, but one's not optional. The truth is more important. I mean, some, you know, 
emphasize politics and party over compassion for people and right and wrong. Are you kidding me? I mean, it's crazy. Let me just tell you something. When a political party, no matter how much you love it, goes against what God says is right and wrong, a Christ follower chooses Jesus. I mean, that's just where it is. How we dress and the style of our music over reaching people for Jesus is what some people do. I mean, there are some people who would gladly let people go to hell in order to keep suits and ties in church or traditional music. Are you, are you kidding me? And yet this is what they do. They choose the optional as they're not optional and they throw away the not optional because what they're doing is living for the scene, what they want, what they desire, how they feel, what benefits them, what they prefer, instead of God. And they do it in the name of Jesus, and it's ruining everything. Let me just tell you, when this happens, it keeps people from hearing the only thing that can genuinely give them hope and change their lives. It keeps them from hearing about Jesus. I'm telling you, I was driven away from God by religion in my early days. I, I attached God to religion, and I hated religion, so I hated or dis just disavowed God. But God and religion are two different things. You need to know when people make the optional, the non-optional, and make the non-optional optional, when they live for the seen instead of the unseen, it drives people away and causes them to reject Jesus and reject his church over things he never said and don't ultimately matter to him. And in so doing, they make, and I hope you'll get this, they make Christianity meaningless because they attach meaningless things to it. If we want to genuinely experience Jesus and share his hope in this world, we need to know the difference between what's optional and what's non-optional. And we need to choose God every time. All right, so why don't I give you some examples, right? Give you some examples. And I'm gonna give you examples that I believe will ultimately cause each and every one of us to reflect and readjust just a little bit. This isn't about those other people. I know often when, when we're sitting here, um, we want a certain truth to be spoken about, and it's not so much because we want to hear that truth and, and be adjusting our lives to that truth. It's because we want someone else to hear that truth so it'll shape them up. You know what I'm saying? But I, I, I'm going to warn you, so this is maybe the time that you should go. Um, I'm going to talk about stuff that you're going to have to deal with. If you're looking down the row at someone else when I'm talking about these things, you're deluded. Because these are our issues. And I'm, I'm just being honest. This is my issue, I know. So what are some examples? Well, the first one, it's pretty big, it hits all of us, is integrity. Integrity is a, a, a non-option. You don't get to choose. Am I going to be honest at work or not? You know, am I going to... Be true to my commitments. Integrity. And by integrity, I mean, so if I could define it for you, um, spotless character. You know, honest. Integrity is talking about a commitment to morality and purity in every area of life. Not subdivided in some areas and not in other areas. You know, integrity at home but not at work. I mean, in every area of life. Because the word integrity means, literally, whole or complete or undivided. That's what it means. So you know when God says he wants us to have integrity, he's saying I want who you are on the inside to be exactly who you are on the outside. No creation of image and perception that aren't real within. Do you see it? Integrity. Who you say you are is who you are. What you say you do is what you do, you know? And it's a commitment to morality. God honored Job in the Bible because of this. And I want you to see it because God had laid out integrity as one of his great commands. And so look at how he honors a man who had integrity. Then the Lord said to Satan, God's actually saying to the evil one, have you considered my servant Job? Now this is God talking about Job. Wouldn't you love God to brag on you? He says, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one, earth, no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, without reproach, you know, spotless character, honest, committed to morality, and uh, undivided, whole. He's blameless and upright. 
And here's why. He's a man who fears God. To fear God means he's a man that sees the unseen and he understands me. He understands his responsibility to me. He understands who I am. He understands and gives me glory. He, he fears God. And because of that, he shuns evil. He doesn't pursue the scene and the selfish junk of this world like so many of us do. And God's bragging on him and he says, in fact, he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me, Satan, against him to ruin him without any reason. Uh, God allowed Satan to literally rip Job's life apart because Job said he only serves you for what you give him. And so God allowed Satan to take everything away. And though it was hard for Job, he maintained his integrity. He, he didn't just have integrity when things were good. He had integrity when things were bad because, see, it wasn't an option. And you know, some of us are all about being good as long as God's given us what we want, but then we kind of give up on God when he's not given us what we want because, see, we're not really living for the unseen. We're living for the seen, right? We're living for what benefits us. And if praying benefits me now, awesome. But if it doesn't, screw him. And I'm, I'm sorry for being blunt, but this is exactly how we are. But integrity's a non-option. How you doing? Are you living for the unseen, really? Or the seen? There's another example of a non-option, and it's love. Love. That sounds easy, you know, all the world needs is love, and we can sing our songs and all that, but you know, we're talking about an unconditional love that no matter what keeps on loving and sacrificing. Talking about a compassion who, that goes beyond what's convenient to us and what's helpful to us and cares about those that matter to God, the whole world. John 13, 34 and 35, Jesus says a new command, there it is, this is not an option. He spoke directly to this, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. How did he love us? He gave his life for us. That's how we have to love one another. In fact, he says, by this everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another like this. Not if you go to the church by the right name, not if you honor the right traditions, not if you vote right, not if you watch the right news station, not if you put money in the offering plate. Not, no, this is how people will know that you're really my followers because you'll love one another because you see those who live for me live for the unseen and those who live for the unseen make obedience the priority. And isn't it interesting how little love there is among those who stand up and worship Jesus in song but they don't do it in life. I mean, there's something wrong with it. We've decided it's more important to worship to the right music than it is to love like Jesus loved. Wrong. I'd rather worship to the wrong music and love right than worship to the right music and love wrong. Wouldn't you? This is obedience. This is what Christianity is supposed to be. It's not an option. Another example of a not for, up for grabs option is forgiveness. Forgiveness, and I'm going to tell you, it's easy to say this word, it's tough to do this in real life. But forgiveness is not an option. And I know a lot of us going, I don't know, look at, I do this in my soul. Trust me, I'm a human being. I'm not, I'm not speaking at you, I'm con conversing with you. Don't you wrestle in yourself, I don't know if I'm going to forgive that person. I don't know if I want to forgive. That person doesn't really deserve to be forgiven. I don't think I'm going to forgive that. I'm going to, are, are you like this or is it just me? But you need to know something. If you're a Jesus follower, you can choose Android or iPhone or Wolverines and Spartans. No big deal. You can't choose whether you'll forgive or not. Now, I know it's hard. It's tough. It's a very difficult thing. But when you see past the scene to the unseen, you realize that Jesus on the cross, in the tomb, and then resurrected gives us the power to be free from bitterness and anger and gives us the power to be free to forgive. And it's not an option. Who haven't you forgiven? It's an issue of obedience. There's another. Well, look at Colossians 3.13, just so you know it's not Brad, it's Scripture. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against one another. Not optional. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Not optional. But remember, he's not doing this to 
make your life worse. He's doing this to make your life better so your joy can complete, be complete. You know what happens when you don't forgive? You're weighted down by anger and the cancer of bitterness. And when you forgive, you're free to experience joy. And by the way, forgiveness doesn't mean you become best friends with the person that's hurting you. Because sometimes you should stay away, actually, and protect yourself from the person that's hurting you. But forgiveness is releasing the bitterness and the poison and the hatred and the anger and the desires for revenge and giving it to God. And there's another example. Generosity. Generosity. You know, giving. Look at 2 Corinthians 8, 7. The Corinthians were great at doing a bunch of spiritual stuff, but they weren't great at generosity and so he said since you excel in everything spiritually you know you're excelling in faith and speech and knowledge and in your earnestness and sincerity and your love that we've kindled in you I mean man you're doing great in so many areas see that you also excel in this grace of giving it's a command to give to give and yeah give of our time and give of our talent and all that stuff but he he's here talking about money actually Giving. He's talking about it because these people were willing to do a bunch of spiritual things, but they weren't willing to give, even though Jesus taught more about giving of money than he did anything else because it's the number one replacement God in this world. God's the only one that can provide security, but people look to money for security and all that, and so they weren't giving. He says, it's not an option. And see, we think it's an option. You know, when I have some extra sometime, you know, I might slip a five spot in there. That text to give thing, I might actually give 50 cents someday. Or whatever. But it's not an option. Look at 2 Corinthians 8, 7 again. Excel in this. This is what you need to excel in this. So here, here's where I'd like to share a human reality. Are you ready? Because I know what just happened in this room. I, 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 wherever you're watching online, I'm glad you're watching. I love it that, that Celine and, and Gross Eel and Brighton, our other regional campuses, along with you here in Plymouth, are watching. I love it that some of you are streaming all around the world or watching on demand. I really love it. But as soon as I mentioned the giving thing, it was like, you're good with love. You were good with forgiveness. You were good with integrity. Yeah. Go get them bread. And then I mentioned giving them, whoa. Because here's the human reality. Some of the biggest talkers about compassion and helping others are the least generous when it comes to their own personal generosity. Did you know that? It's true in politics. Some of the people who talk most about giving all of the American money to the poor are people that when you get to know their personal lives don't give anything personally. Are you kidding me? I mean, it's crazy what they do, but sadly, the same is often true in Christianity. The truth is that if we talk about generosity and we talk about compassion and we talk about how devoted to Jesus we are, but we aren't personally generous, we're messed up big time. There's a problem. We're living for the seen, what we can hoard instead of the unseen. If we're either, if we're, if we're talking about it but not doing it, we're either deceiving ourselves or intentionally deceiving others. That's what we're doing. We certainly lack integrity. We're not the same inside as outside. So here's the deal. Since generosity is an issue of obedience, we can't genuinely love and follow Jesus without being generous. Now here's what I know. That's not going to be my most tweetable sentence in this talk. But I'm telling you it's important. You can't genuinely love and follow Jesus without being generous because those who genuinely love Jesus obey his commands. Right? Are you? Malachi 3.8, God was saying the same thing because people have been the same forever to Old Testament believers and says, will a mere mortal rob God? And yet you rob me, God says. And you ask, how are you robbing me? In tithes and offerings. You're not giving. And, and see, it's just what he's doing is he's simply speaking this truth. Are you ready? If you really love me, you'll obey me. You know I'm not trying to rip you off and keep you down. I'm trying to lift you up and make your life everything it's supposed to be. You'll, you'll know that my commands aren't a burden. They actually open the door for you to experience the best of me. And 
and you'll give. And I'm, I'm just challenging you. And this is for everybody, by the way. It's not for a few people. It's for everybody. It's for me because though Roxanne and I have for years given generously, very often we'll get stuck on a plateau and we'll start getting comfortable with where we're at in our giving level. And God comes along and he challenges us to move forward a little bit. And I don't feel like being challenged to move forward a little bit. And it just means I haven't stepped enough into the unseen. How are you doing here? Is obedience a priority? And this last one I'll throw down too because it's relevant in our day. It's not optional for us to be invested in, a part of, and faithfully involved in church. Church. It's really, really an important issue. Church. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, and let us consider how we can spur each other on toward love and good deeds. I mean, we have to be there for each other. And it says, and this is a command, not giving up meeting together, not giving up gathering together, as some are in the habit of doing, but getting together so you can encourage one another and do it all the more as you see the day approaching. You shouldn't get together less and less. You should get together more and more. We need each other in this world. It's about being involved with, with one another to, to stir each other up to love and good deeds. We need each other and we're supposed to get together. And yet we're living in a day, this is really important, we're living in a day where there are lots of people who say, I love Jesus, I just don't love the church. And I get it, the church is filled with messed up people like me, it's flawed, make mistakes, religions destroy a lot of things, but let me just tell you, you can't love Jesus and not be faithfully committed to his church. You cannot do it, it's impossible, it's obedience. And by the way, I'm not trying to spark attendance here. You're, you're here, but I'm telling you, this is it, you can't love Jesus and not love his church. Church can't be like, yeah, once in a while, you know. Or, you know, I don't like this series. It's not all that good for me. Brad's really beating us up, and so, you know, I'm not going to come. I'll come next time. Because if you notice that passage, it doesn't say keep meeting as long as it's helping you. Do you know what it says? It says keep meeting so you can encourage one another. And I'm telling you, a lot of people go, well, that talk was a nine. That was great. I'll go back next week. That talk was a three. I'm not coming back. What are you coming for? See, we're supposed to be gathering together to be an encouragement to others. Are you? To be invested in others, to be serving others. This is why I hope all of us are invested in volunteering at Easter because the people who are coming need our encouragement that Jesus is for real, that love is for real, that it can happen, but that's why we need to be invested. Here's the application. I can throw this down for you. If we're going to live lives that matter, and all of us do, we want to live lives that matter. If we want to experience the life and fulfillment that Jesus promised, here's what we have to do. We have to make obedience our priority. To which you're going to go, wasn't that the truth? Isn't the application supposed to be different? Didn't you already say, if we see the unseen world like Jesus did, we'll make obedience the priority? I did. I said that. That's exactly right. And then I went about showing you how we believe this as a theory. We accept this as a truth. We just don't live it as the reality of our lives, which means for this truth to set us free, for this truth to be a reality in our lives, we have to go beyond the theory and we have to commit ourselves to the practice of obeying. This is our moment. Look at 1 John 2, verses 3 through 6. We know that we've come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. I'd already read that part. Look what happens after. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we're in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. And there's the boom. When we see the world as Jesus saw it, we obey as Jesus obeyed and we experience the joy that Jesus can offer. Here's my encouragement to you and then I'll ask two questions and be done. We need, we need to choose obedience regardless of the circumstances or consequences. I want you to realize that the call to obey Jesus isn't cheap. 
It's very expensive. It doesn't come easy, it comes with great sacrifice. For a mess up, the easy thing is to keep messing up. For a Samson, the easy thing is to want the woman and to pursue the woman. It's tough to say no to what you see and feel. But would you just listen to this? But it's worth it. Because everything we think we're going to get by pursuing what we see, we only ultimately get by pursuing the unseen reality of God. And so the choice seems obvious to me. So let me ask you this morning, do you genuinely know God? Do you genuinely know God? Not, did you get baptized one time, catechism? Do you genuinely know him? Because you see, when you genuinely know God, you live differently. Look at John 1.12. To all who did receive Jesus, to those who put their trust in his name, you know, in his death, burial, and resurrection to new life, to those people he gives the right to become children of God, you experience his love, you experience his promises, you experience his life because you're walking hand in hand with him. Do you know him? And here's the second question. If you do know him, are you genuinely obeying him? Genuinely. Really? obeying him. John 14, 15, Jesus is the one that said it. If you love me, keep my commands. He didn't say, if you love me, dress a certain way, act a certain way, listen to certain music. If you love me, go to a certain church. If you love me, no. If you love me, obey me. Are you? I believe the central thing missing in Christianity today, the central thing missing in the lives of those of us who claim to follow Jesus, I believe the central missing thing is the commitment to obedience. But remember this. Failure does not have to be final. It's been missing. We've blown it. Samson blew it. But it doesn't have to be final. He wasted a lot of time, Samson did. It wasn't until he was dying that he went out in a blaze of glory and got it right. But we can actually do it long before that point. Look at 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Yes. Yes. Failure doesn't have to be final. I know that you've had a challenge with this truth, because I do, but I also know that failure doesn't have to be final, but I also know it's so easy to hear a talk and to leave and do nothing about it. Won't you, won't you, won't you make the choice to commit to obedience now? So just before we go, I'm gonna pray with you. Would you do that with me? And as we pray, I hope every single one of you are talking to God about where this talk rubs you, but if you wanna experience Jesus for the first time in your life, maybe you want to take a step into a new relationship with him, would you pray with me? Would you just take my words and make them yours in your heart? Just say, Jesus, I, I freely right now confess my sin, my guilt. I've been living for the seen instead of the unseen. But in this moment, I know that you died on the cross for my sin and rose again. And so I'm Asking you, Jesus, by faith, forgive me and make me a child of God. Change me like you changed Samson. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, just before I say goodbye, if you prayed with me, we want to give you a Bible, and we want to give you some information on next steps you can take, and all you need to do to get it is let us know that you prayed with me. And so in the programs that you were handed when you came in, and this is true at all of our campuses, just take out the connection card. You just rip it out, fill it out, and check either that you prayed for the first time to receive Jesus or you prayed to renew your faith, whichever one's true of you, and then put it in one of the boxes as you leave our auditoriums, and we'll send you that information. If you're watching online, hit the wet next button, and we'll do the same thing for you, okay? And two things as you get ready to go. Remember this week, would you, that Samson had every advantage and he lost it because he forgot to see God and he went after what he saw in this world and we have the same reality. 
see beyond the seen to the unseen and experience God at his best. I hope that every single one of you will help us to, to put on a great spread for Easter, that you'll check off some way to volunteer, that you'll go into the activity center here in Plymouth and, and you'll share, do that. And at all of our campuses, I hope you'll volunteer as well, okay? And if you need to talk to someone, we have a prayer team that meets up front as soon as we say goodbye. Thanks for being here. I'm so grateful. Have a great, great week. Searches.